and welcome to Shakespeare, the official Lionface Productions podcast where we talk about Shakespeare. My name is Chase, your mostly quiet producer. Today, we journey back to Ashland, Oregon to talk about the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's rendition of Love's Labor's Lost. We also check in with one of Lionface Productions' founders, Tyler Lemons, and his wife Randy to get some feedback on some of our topics so far. If you live in Northwest Ohio and would like to get involved with our organization, be it to act, direct, or anything else theater-related, please reach out to us at facebook.com slash lionfaceproductions. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Shakespeare and at ShakespearePod. And now, on with the show. Alright, back at it. Rocking it 2 style. Oh no, oh no. Cassie's pulling a me and is falling asleep. It's so late. It is, it is fairly late. Um... Well, sort of. I mean, it is... It's midnight Oregon time, which means that it's 3 a.m. real time. Yes. So in that in, in that way, it is actually quite late, especially for us two old people. Uh, I am your typical producer, Chase Greenlee. I'm Cassie Greenlee. And we're still on vacation in Oregon. Yeah, and we're going to talk about a little bit more of the Shakespeare that we've seen. Yeah, so uh, we actually just got home like 20 minutes or so ago from seeing... Uh, something that I'm going to say most people haven't seen. Love's Labor's Lost. Love's Labor's Lost. Um, we had the opportunity when we were booking this vacation and we were looking at the season. We had the opportunity to see three shows. We knew for sure that we wanted to see Book of Will. Mm-hmm. We knew for sure that we wanted to see the other one that we saw. Yes, Othello. Othello, that one. Um, and so then it came time to decide what the third show would be and what ended up not being prohibitively expensive was either um going to see Romeo and Juliet or Love's Labor's Lost. Mm-hmm. Um they've they're also doing Henry V, but that just didn't fit in with the time slot of when we were coming and other things that we were seeing. But sure. so, you know, in deciding between R and J and Love's Labor's Lost, we took a gamble mm-hmm. um on the show we'd aren't familiar with, weren't familiar with. And so we went to see Love's Labor's Lost instead of R&J. And I'm glad we made that choice. Yeah. It was really a good production. It's true. We will we will have ample opportunities to see R&J in the future. Cassie, you're directing it next year. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's public knowledge yet, but now it is. Um, but yeah, Cassie's going to be directing that next year. And... So to not sully the waters of her creativity, um, and to let us see something, I know, right? And to let us see something that we have never seen before. I've never even heard of somebody performing Love's Labors before. Um, I'm sure plenty of people have, of course. I mean, Shakespeare companies do. Yeah, but that's, that's about it. Um, so you've got to be in the right space and time. And it was for being a show. That is missing its second half. It was fairly engaging. Um, the basic overall story is, well, you probably know what that is because I'm going to guess this particular portion is going to go on the end of one of our Love's Labors episodes, which we will be recording in the near future. Um, so yeah, so you'll, we'll have done the plot synopsis. You'll have heard it. Yes. So we won't spend too much time trying to summarize that for you, but. The whole thing with Love's Labor's Lost is that it was part of a duology 
Um, and there was a, there's a sequel play called Love's Labors One, but it's one of the lost Shakespeare plays. There's no record of it existing. Um, there's no script for it anymore. It's, it's lost to time. And so, um, this makes me want to go back and watch that Doctor Who episode where they went back in time to Shakespeare because I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. it was Love's Labors One that. Yep. Yeah, that's the... Anyway, sorry, tangent. <laughs> Complete tangent. But anyway, um, so the whole, you, you get the setup in this play for the sequel, but there is no sequel. And so the end of this play we were talking about afterwards feels very modern in a sense because it's not the traditional ending to a comedy from Shakespeare that you would expect. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit less resolved it's more up in the air it's kind of it's not bittersweet exactly but there's not there's not a resolution no um with the characters with the the big conflict that pops up in act five mm -hmm. um you think everything's going along well and good and uh and then it doesn't yeah but what was really but we'll we'll talk about all that and themes and stuff but what was really cool about this production is that the director actually wrote songs for the characters. And so the transitions in and out of acts were actually sung by the actors, um, like rock band style. Like mm -hmm. they were, go it wasn't just like singing. It was like going over and they got guitars and guitars yeah. and. What was that? Guitars, guitars, uh, violin. Uh, somebody had a ukulele I saw. Yeah. Um, there was somebody I saw sitting in the background plinking on a little kid's xylophone. Xylophone. There was a percussion set. Yeah. Um, but Chase and I were both saying we would love to purchase the soundtrack. Oh, For yeah. this show. Yeah, the seriously. songs were really good. Oregon, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. If you're, if somebody from your, uh, your, your oeuvre, your, uh, your sphere is listening, uh, one fantastic festival this year. Like tonight, this was the last show we were seeing. Um, and just everything that we saw and everything that we did this week has been phenomenal. Like you do such a good show. Like people, if you're listening and looking for a vacation, consider the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Mm -hmm. They're not paying us to say that. We just really, really enjoyed our week out here. We did. We really did. Um, but also if you can, if you can hook us up with that soundtrack, like, even if it's just tell me where to go to pay for it, I will pay for it. We would. Yeah. Yeah, because we were jamming out to that the entire time. All of the songs were us felt like two minutes a piece, which is about how long a song should be. Um, and nothing, you know, the songs did not overstay their welcome. I can't necessarily say that for all of the text of the show. Um, because as actually your mother pointed out to us on our way up, um, this is, well, it pointed out to me, uh, this is a show where Shakespeare really just revels in his ability to write. I don't think that was my mom. No? Somebody pointed it out to that me. That was Tyler. Was it Tyler? Tyler I thought, was saying that when we were talking to him. I think it, your mom might have mentioned it. No, your mom did mention it. It was before you got in the car. Oh, okay. Yes. I was going to say, I don't remember my mother talking about this play. But Tyler also mentioned that. He he brought up that this really is a lot of Shakespeare just kind of showing off mm -hmm. how talented he is. Yes. Which, I mean, he's earned the right to do. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about him 600 years later. Uh, 400 years later? Something like that. That math. <laughs> math. 
Um, it's late. But what was also really cool about this uh, production in particular was the way that they transitioned costumes. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody started the show in white costumes and there were buckets of paint like all over the mm. stage and the actors were constantly painting on their costumes to symbolize falling in love and to symbolize connections mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And that was through act one. And then act two opened with everybody in red costumes and then, spoiler alert, um, when the princess of Spain's father, not Spain, France's father dies, everybody transitions to black. Uh, but it was a really cool visual progression because mm-hmm. the set also got progressively less bright. Yeah. As it went along, which was a really kind of cool way to, to underline some of these themes. I also, what I always enjoy at, at Shakespeare festivals like this when you have the chance to see multiple shows is that almost every actor in the company is doing multiple performances. Um, they're in more than one play. And so it's always kind of fun for me to see actors that I saw in one show then having another role in this show. And so with Love's Labor's Lost in particular, there were three Othello actors. Uh, we had Othello mm-hmm. uh, playing a, a real bit part. He was the priest. And we had Desdemona, who played the Princess of France. And the best one was we had uh, Rodrigo from Othello played Barone. And he's phenomenal. He's so talented. I'm going to pick up my playbill and find out what his name is because I want to highlight that. That's not the right play. Uh, Love's Labor's Lost. Stephen Michael Spencer. Okay. Um, Yeah. And he was he was very very good. Yeah. Uh, something else that I want to point out is that uh, the all of the costuming was incredibly incredibly stylized. Like mm-hmm. they, you know, not not just in color but also uh, in what they were wearing. Um, I also was getting a really strong Beatles vibe from the main four fellas. Uh, I'm not able to uh, find. Any images or pictures to depict my full theory based on that and how they were thinking of it. Um, but I am going to, you know, leave it like you've got the four guys. They were wearing, wearing matching outfits pretty much the entire time. Uh, and then uh, the one person who was wearing what I would consider to be like plain clothes was the woman delivering the bad news. Yeah. Yeah, I did notice that. And it was a huge clearly intentional stylistic break because you had somebody coming in who is completely separate from everything that has been going on uh in every way i don't even you never even really saw her face her like her head was bowed the entire time she came on she delivered her news and she you know exited off the stage through an audience like uh and you know an actor exit through the audience and then she was gone yeah so i just um the director of this was a lady named Amanda Dennert, hmm. and I just really want to shout out to her because she directed really a phenomenal production. Absolutely. And um, a, it was sh- really, really well done. A show that is very easy to get lost in its own weeds because of its wordiness, because it is absolutely leading to something else. Um, and uh, they were able to kind of, you know, like we said earlier, it felt very modern. 
Yes, yeah. it did. It really did. You know, I can, I could absolutely see a production, you know, this kind of a plot, this kind of a story with like, I don't know, maybe a Zach Braff or a Josh Radner type as the king. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. And, you know, it ends on a super sad note and that's just kind of what you get. Yeah. And then Baron goes over to the mm-hmm. musicians and picks up a guitar and goes, this is a comedy and launches into the fun reprise of Jackie, will you go out with me? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, that's the other, like, I wish I could just splice in a little bit of this music so that y'all could so hear good. it. If I can, if that ends up being a thing that I can track down and put in there with permission that I'm gonna, because it's a really good time. It's good music. Um, and if it exists for purchase, you can absolutely check the show notes. It'll be there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's about yeah. all I want to say. Actually, no, I do want to point out, uh, just to throw it out there for the sake of throwing it out there. Um, the level of transformation the stage went through. Oh, that's always really cool too. Because we saw Book of Will last night where uh, we're not going to gush too much about that because we're about to gush about it a <sighs> whole lot because we're recording these out of order. Um, but, uh, they, it went from a very Spartan stage design to incredibly loud and elaborate. This stage also has a hydraulic lift built into it. And it's also a pseudo replica, or at least that, you know, it, it, it is meant to harken back to the globe itself. Yeah, it's not a direct replica, no. but it's it's definitely takes its inspiration from. Um, yeah. Yeah, and uh, um, so you've got that and the very Spartan set, set really worked with uh, what we saw last night. Uh, but the loud visual cacophony that was going on stage, uh, cause you had scaffolding, you had, uh, sequence curtains, you had the band was all on stage mm-hmm. with the performers because in a lot of cases they were one and the same. They, they were, were leaving yeah. a scene to pick up instruments or microphones, uh, sometimes both at the same time, which I'm not sure if you personally have tried to do but two of those things at once. It's really hard. Um, and there were a bunch of, like, giant mylar balloons, mm-hmm. uh, there's a tree An inflatable on pig yeah, An reasons. inflatable pig, yeah. No, it was, uh, it was intense. It was a lot going on, and it was a lot to digest. I'm glad we got there as soon as the doors opened, because I, I think if I sat down and watched the show and had not, like, been able to digest that set before going in, it would have been a lot going on. Yeah. Um, but all in all, a good show. Um, mm-hmm. If you get a chance to see Love's Labors uh, at a uh, anything going on near you, take it up. It's not something that is performed very often because, as we've indicated here, and as I'm sure we've indicated in the plot synopsis and the themes discussion, um, there are some problems with the show. Not huge ones, not as big as they should have been. However, it's also possible that this director was doing uh, some expert cutting as well. True. And honestly, there are places that I could have even considered cutting more. Um, if they did do any cutting at all, which they probably did. I, yeah, I don't know how to do it. Fair enough. All right. Uh, well, I think that's all I've got to say. All on this, yep. All right, cool, cool.
Alright, so on that note, actually this will probably go into one of those episodes that I just mentioned, because I am recording at this point. Um, and uh, You can see the little lines. Yeah, you can see the, the, the good, good blue waveforms going on there. Um, and we're recording uh, a very, very special episode of Shakespeare at another new location, an undisclosed location, and I'm holding a baby, and she's very mad that I'm not letting her play with the computer right now. <laughs> All right, and other people in the room, uh, well, I'm Chase Greenlee, I'm your usually silent producer, but uh, other people in the room, why don't you introduce yourselves? I'm Cassie Greenlee, and I'm here all the time. Uh, I am Tyler Lemons, and I am <laughs> never at this computer, but usually at this location. And I am Randy Lemons, I am the mother of said baby. And this is Tallulah, you'll probably hear from time to time. <laughs> Tallulah, for when you're listening to this 15 years in the future, um, we did give you ample opportunity to go to bed. It is nine, it is almost nine o'clock local time, and that's very late for me to be awake local time. Uh, so I can only imagine that this is just some serious uh, fear missing out kind of kicking in here. Um, but uh, Tyler is uh, well known in the Bowling Green Theater community for being one of the founding members of Lion Face Productions. Uh, so we felt that in our visit out here to uh, see theater and to see him that, and meet his wonderful family, uh, it would be remiss to not do a little recording over here to... I know Tallulah! But to allow Tyler to uh, express maybe some thoughts and opinions he may have had when listening to an episode a couple of months back. Well, just a little fun fact about me. My favorite Shakespeare show is Romeo and Juliet. It's not just my favorite Shakespeare show. I believe it is the finest play ever written by anyone in any language that I have ever experienced. And do you hear that? Somewhere, on the other side of the country, Ryan Halfill is screaming into a pillow. <laughs> Continue. You're full of shit, Ward, is what he's saying. Because he has decided that my name is still Ward when I'm wrong. I have adopted this as well. But, here's my thoughts on Romeo and Juliet. And please, anyone who has a thought, please feel free to uh, chime in. Because debating this show is one of the biggest joys of my life. But... My reason I think it is the finest play ever written is that anything you could possibly want from a play exists in Romeo and Juliet, and it makes coherent sense, and it's shorter than all his other tragedies, except for Mackers, which is almost as good. So, within that, I can defend all of those statements. The first half of Romeo and Juliet is a fine romantic comedy. It is a pretty decent romantic comedy. And then shit hits the fan, and it becomes one of the most famous and beloved tragedies of all time. And everything that goes into sewing those two ideas together gives you everything you could possibly want from a theatrical experience. You have humor. You have romance. Yes, it's a little bit of an immature romance. I will admit that. It is not a good love story. It is a good story about the nature of shitty love. But... When, and then after the shit hits the fan, it becomes this tale of tragedy and revenge and mistakes and hubris and everything you could possibly want from, especially from a Shakespeare play, but from any play in general, exists in this play in some way or another. Does anyone have a thought or a question about that idea? No, I think that's a really good point. 
um, my problem with the play isn't with the play itself. It's with how it's been treated over the years. The fact that people look at yeah, it as a that, paragon yeah, of like, romance. Like, this is the greatest love story ever told. Like, that's what I have a problem with. No. And, because it's not. And so, I'm directing this show next year. Mm-hmm. And, And um, I directed it last year. Yeah. And, uh, that's one of the things that I want to highlight when I direct it is putting the focus not on the love story, but on everything else going on around the love story, the circumstances in which the love story happens and how the culture of the feud and the ongoing fight has contributed both to the love story and the way the love story falls apart. You see, I would argue even further that it isn't a love story at all, that it is a story of obsession and I have a huge problem with it. And I, the fact that you think it is the epitome is disturbing. <laughs> it's a terrible story if you want it to be a love story. It's awful as a love story. And I don't think Shakespeare meant it to be a love story. And the fact that people think it is, I think, is a huge misreading of the play. Yeah. And the reason I say that textually is that when Romeo comes to Friar Lawrence and is like, dude, I'm in love, I want to get married. And Friar Lawrence is like, yeah, but whatever. And he's like, but he's like, so this Rosaline chick, he's like, no, 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 not Rosaline, Juliet. And Friar Lawrence goes, what the fuck? <laughs> Yesterday you were in here bitching about how much you love Rosaline. Mm-hmm. Today you're in here ready to marry this other 14-year-old girl that you met last night and you haven't even been to bed yet. I'm fairly certain she was like 12, actually. But um, to Cassie's point, I would say that it, the problem isn't with the actual writing. It is what our culture has made it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so... I think if you put the focus elsewhere, you can really use this play to say something mm-hmm. important, both about how we treat, how we as a culture have an obsession with love stories, and we want everything to be like this great grand love story, and how we put the focus in the wrong places. Because as a culture, we tend to value more the idea of I'd be willing to die for this person that I love than. I'm going to actually choose to live for this person that I love. And the idealistic notion that youth is worth more than, you know, actually putting in the work. Like, you can't just pop out of bed as an infant and fall in love and not put any work into it. Love is not, I see you from across the room. Love is years of choosing each other. And working with each other. And it drives me bananas. Well, I think from <laughs> when you look at the this, this story from a directorial standpoint, I think how you feel about the show and how you want to approach the show relies heavily on who you think is the most important character at any given moment mm-hmm. in the show. And while Romeo and Juliet drive the plot, I don't think that their story is the most important story in the show. Mm-hmm. At any given moment, except for a couple times here or there. Mm-hmm. I think the story belongs much more to uh, uh, Mercutio and Friar Lawrence as thematically than it does to actually to Romeo and Juliet. I believe that they're the conscience of the play. And Mercutio is the conscience of the romantic conscience of the tragedy. And that's why you have to kill off Mercutio halfway through. Because if he's there at the end, things probably go a lot better for everybody. Yeah. And... Um... There was a point I was going to make. It was going to be brilliant. <laughs> yeah, mine went a little left field, too. <laughs> it's a little, uh, um, it'll come back to me. So, 
Other uh, points. Quick shout out. Uh, I am <laughs> drinking a New Belgium Fat Tire Belgian White to celebrate my Colorado roots. Um, that is what but you uh, Chase has also had Fat Tire and 1554 tonight. Correct. Uh, Cassie's drinking Mike's Hard Lemonade. What I flavor? Like purple. Uh, purple. <laughs> Yep. I think it's black cherry uh, because I like the fruity alcohol. There's nothing wrong with that. Tallulah has been drinking formula and mm-hmm. water spiked with Pedialyte. <laughs> and Randy, are you also in a fat tire at the moment? I am in a fat tire at the moment. All right. And none of these were the chosen for their thematic connection to Romeo and Juliet, but not. But apparently it's just the alcohol that's in that. Apparently we're trying for that good Okay, beer. here we go. Hold on. They were chosen for Romeo and Juliet because they were on sale. <laughs> and give me a second. I can do this. I believe in you. I can do this. And Tybalt, I've decided, is a cheap motherfucker. So this is in <laughs> honor of the most two-dimensional character in the play. Here is to Tybalt. To Tybalt. To Tybalt. Huzzah. Um, cheers. <laughs> yeah, but no, I I think cheers. focusing on. The idea that Romeo and Juliet may drive the plot forward, but they're not really the most important characters in the play is an important uh, distinction to make. Because just because we found this out with Troilus and Cressida when we were talking about that, just because your name's in the title doesn't mean that you're actually important to anything that happens. Right. Mm -hmm. They are the plot of the play. They are structurally important, but I feel like thematically, if you focus on their love, you're missing the point of the story. I'm sorry, love. There's quotation marks around that. The fact that this has been built and grown so much into, ingrained really into, especially our generation, Mm -hmm. pop culture. So... Trying to take, you know, the romance and and the focus off of them is very difficult because no matter what you try to do when you are directing, etc., people are always going to try and look for that. And the way that I'm working around that when I direct it next mm-hmm. year is that I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and said, how can I move the focus from this idea of a great love story to what I actually want to focus on, which is how ridiculous the fight is yeah um is that i'm setting it on a playground i'm making everybody in the play children except for the prince um who's the prince a pole yes nice <laughs> not intentionally a pun i was very angry with myself when i realized that it was a pun but then it was too perfect to dial back from so <laughs> um but i i chose that route because when you are talking about like a playground romance between two fifth graders, you can heighten it to the extreme while simultaneously conveying that this is ridiculous. You can't call this a great romantic love story because it's two ten year olds on a playground, yep. you know, holding hands and talking about how they're going to love each other forever. Mm-hmm. And so that was was my way to take that focus off of this as a great grand love story was to to put it in that context. And to talk about how ridiculous the feud is, there's mm-hmm. no good reason for two elementary school classes to be at odds with each other. But when you're in the fifth grade, sometimes that's how it works. Mm-hmm. And this idea of nobody remembers why they're fighting anymore. They just always have been. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Well, I think that's a really great interpretation, and I think that I would have way less of a problem with it if that was the interpretation that was the norm. Um, yeah. Well, and I think for me, uh, because the first version I was ever uh, I was ever exposed to was the Zeffirelli version from the '60s, which really heightens the romantic feeling. Which Zeffirelli did; he had such a good eye for romantic feeling in general. Even when he did the darker plays, there's a, a certain romance to the way he directs and the way he interprets. And so I think for a huge generation of people, that became the defining version of Romeo and Juliet. And I saw it on stage in uh, Colorado when they did it in Southern California during the gold rush. So the Capulets were uh, Spanish landowners and the Montagues were uh, 49ers. And that, for me, really, really solidified the idea of conflict in the play and having that be as important as anything else. And then when the Baz Luhrmann version came out, yeah, the, the, the romantic scenes between Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio were played to a very high level, but the most interesting characters in the play are Mercutio and Friar Lawrence because of the actors they got and the way that they shot it and the dramatic way that Baz Luhrmann did it. And that made me look at it again. Because I, when I was younger, I thought Romeo and Juliet was a huge steaming pile of crap. Because the whole time, even when I was a kid, I looked at that romance and went, what? No. No, this is not romantic. This is not love. This is two kids with a boner for each other wanting to get married so they can have sex. This isn't romantic. Like, this isn't two people willing to fight for each other. So even as a kid, I could see that. But as I got older and I could see that that's not how the play is written. It's not played, it's not written to, to celebrate their love. It's written to highlight their foolishness. And not just theirs, but the whole city's foolishness. And so as soon as I keyed into Mercutio being the rich playboy who's just out to have a good time and doesn't really care about the consequences, and the incredibly responsible friar who does something irresponsible to try to fix the problem and ends up making it worse... Those two ideas really solidified to me what the play is about, which is about the responsibility to your family, responsibility to your city, the responsibility to history, all those things, and how stupid those kind of conflicts can be. And so for me, the play is way more about that. It's more important than two teenagers wanting to get it on. So what I'm hearing is basically that it boils down to perspective, which is a thing that lots of things boil down to. Um, in the situation that we're in with this particular play is that we have this runaway train that is the cultural phenomenon that it has become versus people's literal interpretation of it. And see, you thought you didn't have anything to participate with this in this discussion. <laughs> that boiled it down pretty well. I critically think for a living. No, that's, that's a good point. That's sure, good point. why not? <laughs> you know, and while I have the microphone here, this is really, really important. Othello is about jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It oh. isn't about anything deeper than pure, simple, stupid jealousy. That's what it's about. <laughs> Stop trying to make it more complicated than a little dude being jealous of a different dude with different skin and willing to do stupid shit because he's jealous. Jealousy. <laughs> By Calvin Klein. <laughs> <laughs> Which very 
funny because we also re-argued that uh, that whole shebang. Uh, when truth we, versus control. Truth versus control. And we also came to two very different words as well. What did you come to? Well, I threw a curveball at Chase because when we were in the car driving and we're like, it wasn't about truth or control. It was about manipulation. And then when we sat down to record, I went, actually, it's about entitlement. <laughs> and when you think you're entitled to something you and somebody else who it. you don't think is entitled to get it, what emotion do you feel? Jealousy! <laughs> the green-eyed monster is the most famous phrase from Othello. The show's about jealousy. It's really not that hard. Anyway, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> You're apparently, not I've been, hold, I've been holding on to that for a couple months, apparently. <laughs> Just waiting to have a microphone in front of me. Uh, you got it now. You got it now. And my intention is to go back to the Airbnb once they wrap everything, export everything, upload it, so that it exists in the cloud in case something terrible happens to our luggage. So if nothing else, the, that, the, the important things from, uh, uh, from the vacation survive. That's good. <laughs> the, the important things, the conversations. Yeah. Because that's exactly. what it's all about. Exactly. Learning and growing. If it didn't happen on microphone, it didn't Could you be more on right now? I couldn't be I more on. on. I couldn't be more on. <laughs> I, I've got a couple beers in me. As and much people as I got love a, you, I'm like, what the heck? Yeah, people put a microphone in front of me and let me talk Shakespeare after getting a couple beers in me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. That's the show. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Speaking of which, I went dry. Can't do that. No! Oh, we're getting low. We're fine. It's like four people have been drinking in your house all night. Crazy. Crazy. Crazy <laughs> uh, five if you can't Tallulah. A couple other points She's I want to make. Upon the same thing. <laughs> uh, I am really pleased that uh, Cassie is the hill I will die on is that Winter's Tale is an amazing show person. Yes. Because every show needs that person. And King John doesn't have that person, but Winter's Tale does. So, <laughs> thank God for that. Although I think Travis Cook could put together a pretty good defense of King John. Really likes that show. Um, let's see. So you did Othello, Romeo and Juliet, Winter's Tale. What am I missing? Much oh, Ado? Gosh. Much Ado. We've done Much Ado. Okay, because I'm a little bit behind in the show. Midsummer, we've done... I didn't. I haven't heard any of the Midsummer yet. Hang on, I'll pull up our... But definitely, I remember Much Ado. Don't. Much Ado. Don't. Because <laughs> I, I was drinking coffee, but I took yeah. a shot every time I heard someone say Much Ado. Don't. <laughs> you could still play that game. It comes up enough. It does. Yeah. So, Much Ado, Othello, R&J, Winner's Tale, Julius Caesar. Okay, so I've, the, I've listened to the first four shows. I don't really have anything to add to the Much Ado conversation. It was pretty well covered. The uh, delightful feminist themes, the, the, the discussion about uh, how absolutely terrible Hero's father is, all of that stuff. It was covered pretty well. Like, yeah. Yeah. Feel like that was a very well explored. I uh, can't forget ostentatious. <laughs> ostentatious. Yes, which I never did talk about. I saw uh, their production of Sense and Sensibility while I was out here, and meant at some point to yes chat about that and about I. I I'm glad that I saw it. I'm still not a hundred percent sure how I feel about it. I think a lot of how I feel boils down to. There's a reason there aren't more stage adaptations of Jane Austen. I think I don't know. I just don't think it's the best 
medium for that type of story. They put the baby to bed, so there's dancing <laughs> happening in the kitchen right now. She's finally asleep. Um, but yeah, it was it was an interesting production. I like the script that they used. Um, I wasn't crazy about some of their casting choices. And yeah, some of the directorial decisions I think didn't serve the story as well as it could have been served. I had the uh, same feeling a couple of years ago they did uh, Great Expectations. Mm. I mean, first off, I thought it was going to be better. Uh, second off, that's a title pun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I got gotcha. you. Second off, they're condensing a Dickens book, and Dickens was paid by the word, so his books were always three to four times longer than they needed to be to yeah. actually be a good book. Uh, and so they did a lot of uh, the secondary characters wearing these really cool costumes, but they were coming forward doing a lot of expositional narration, just straight out to the audience, like, oh, they're wearing the deep green right now, which means they're a narrator right now, which means I am bored. And it's because you, you, when you're trying to do... I, I saw an eight-hour version of Nicholas Nickleby once, which was awesome. We had uh, snack breaks and a lunch break in the middle, and they served dinner afterwards. It was just a full-day thing. You got there at nine in the morning. You were done at nine at night. Did this whole huge eight-hour production with these dinner breaks where they fed us. And it was really good. It was a thorough adaptation. The story was very good and it was broken up enough that our butts didn't get too tired. But when you're trying to cram all of a Dickens book into two and a half hours... You just it suffers really badly. Yeah, and I, I I felt the same sort of thing from this production. Also, the lady that they had playing Eleanor is very clearly in her forties, which is fine. She's very talented, but Eleanor is twenty one in that book, and that pulled me out a lot. Um, and I mean, I'm always a proponent of casting young people to play young people. And so... It's sort of one you know, of our mission statements, Yeah, really. wouldn't it be great if Margaret Dashwood, who is 11, had been played by an 11-year-old? Now, one of the great things I did enjoy about Great Expectations is one of my former students played uh, the young rival when he was young, hmm. the one that he gets into a fight with, mm-hmm. and then played his servant once he grew up. Oh. And stole every scene he was in. <laughs> yeah. So it was really great watching one of my students steal a professional theater production. Absolutely. And and, and it's, see, he was only 16 years old when he was doing it. Yeah. He was up there with people who'd been acting for 20 years, and no one was watching them. Because he was, he was only in his comic relief characters and really delivered. And it was just really, it was fantastic to see that. So that was a really good. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it was it was well performed, um, but the script has about like twenty parts in it. But they only had about ten actors, and everybody was double cast. Which they had this like collection of gossips to move you from one scene into the next, which actually worked really well because a whole bunch of that show is about and that story is about you know rumors and reputation and. So having the gossips was great, but it was the other characters who played the gossips, and they didn't change costumes. And so it became very jarring because you're like, okay, but that character, and she's still dressed as that character, wouldn't be gossiping with these other characters who were here. At least give her a hat or something. Yeah, and so it was like, that That didn't quite work for me. 
And I would have preferred to see the show with the gossips being their own people completely mm-hmm. um, to transition from scene to scene. Um, and Edward Ferris is a really hard character to do well. And I don't, I think this adaptation, much like some other adaptations, didn't do him uh, as well as he needs to be done because it's really easy to hate on Edward Ferris because he's not a great dude. Um, he's supposed to be the hero, but. I hate that character so much. It's my second least favorite leading Austin man. Um, She's ranked her favorite have, leading yes, Austin men. I have. In, in this fact. is a place where Cassie and I differ strongly. <laughs> because she's talking about sense and sensibility. I'm sitting here going, okay, it could be set on Mars and I would not know the difference. Yeah, no, I'm sitting here if it's not like, Emma or Pride and Prejudice, I have no idea. And I don't even no. have that, honestly. Yes. I have... Absolutely nothing. Oh, except that you know Emma very well because of Clueless. Ha. No, Clueless is a beat-for-beat beat remake of Emma. It's really good. I mean, it's set in a different way. It uses different language, but it hits all the points of the story yeah. extremely well. It what does. I did understand is that she was having a hard time suspending her disbelief in long enough to enjoy the interpretation of yes. the show, though. Yes, yes. So I did hear that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but no, most of that was for Beth because... Well, I, I, I feel that that's a problem when you're specifically adapting a piece of literature to stage. To get all the nuances of the literature is very difficult while keeping the story intact. Mm-hmm. Because there's, there's, you can't do it without narration, but narration absolutely kills movement. Right, which is why I like the addition of the gossips in this, because that's a way to put the ex- exposition in while still letting things move forward. So that is a good, strong choice of the script, but other choices that the script made don't work as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just think it's interesting that of all the adaptations that do exist of Jane Austen's work, very few of them are play and stage adaptations. There's a lot of movies, um, but the best ones are the longest ones. And again, I think it's similar to Dickens. There's just so much going on, so much like intricate stuff going on in the stories that. Well, and in when you're doing a film adaptation of like Dickens or Austen or something along those lines, you have those close-ups and those mid-range that you can't get when you're a theater audience, mm-hmm. and those tell so much because your actors get to convey so much of what's going on with subtext just with a look or with a way they deliver a line where you get to see the way their eyes look while they're doing it, and if you're you know. 80 feet away from the actors in a theater, you can't get that subtext just from the way their eye glistens in this moment. Whereas if you're doing a film adaptation, you can tell so much with a camera angle or a lighting or something like that. Right. I'm going to pause you guys for just a second. I'm not sure why it wasn't recording with the proper microphone the first time, but we are now. Okay, so our sound quality wasn't quite what it should have been earlier. Correct. Okay. Othello is about jealousy. <laughs> I just want to make sure that was recorded well. There we go. There okay. we go. We got that. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I made sure I was nice and quiet, but nice and close. I feel like hopefully the point was gotten at this point. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, but to go off of what you were talking about with 
camera angles and in film versus seeing it in the theater. I was actually very close. I was in the second row, but I was, this was performed in the Bomer Theater, which is the way they had it set up is almost partial thrust because the far edges of the seats wrap so far around the stage. And we saw Othello there, and they handled that very well in terms of how it was staged. Sense of Sensibility did not stage it well for that space because a lot of what was happening, I couldn't see. Um, Because an actor had his back to me and was immediately in front of the other actor in the scene. So there were quite a few scenes where I was like, I know important emotional things are happening, but I can't see any of them. And so that's also something that you have to take into consideration when you're staging for, you know, live theater as Mm. opposed to for film. And it's just, it's an additional consideration. And I think there's a lot of potential in the script. I think it can be done well. Um, I don't feel like this production showed off the strengths of the script as well as it could have. Well, and the Bomer's a really interesting theater because the seats are auditorium style, almost. Mm-hmm. Like, very close to an auditorium style with that semicircle. But it's a proscenium stage that also has, a, like, a rounded thrust coming off it's of it. It's a very deep apron. It's a Yeah, a very deep apron. It's a very interesting space to try to block for. Mm-hmm. And I have seen mostly very successful uh, blocking. But every once in a while, you'll, you'll, like, see a scene where you're like... This is not working as well for me if you're sitting off to the side. Like, it's always fantastic if you're in the middle. Always. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, but no, it's a very interesting deal. if you're in the cheap seats because you can't pay $100 per ticket, ha-ha. <laughs> Yay <laughs> for like, us. Like most people. Like <laughs> most people. Yeah. And when we saw Othello, we were also way far to the side, but then at least everything was staged when they were down on the apron portion, they were really good about using thrust staging techniques so that you could still have some part in the action that was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with Sense and Sensibility, it was all straight proscenium staging, even when they were out where the, the stage is basically a thrust stage. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um... Well, and then, of course, like, Sense and Sensibility and Othello are very different shows energy-wise. I would feel like Sense and Sensibility has a lot more still moments. Yeah, it's a lot quieter. Yeah, whereas <laughs> Othello has a lot of kinetic energy. And I haven't seen either of these productions, so this is me doing a fair amount of assumption. But knowing Austin and knowing Othello pretty well, I feel like it would be easier to use the thrust staging because you can move your actors around. Mm-hmm. And you might miss a line here or there if you're in the cheap seats. Yeah. But it's not going to stay around for a while, whereas Austin, a lot less movement overall. Yes, yes, that is accurate. All right, Tyler, is there anything else that you want to share about what we've done that you've listened to so far? Any, any strong Troilus and Cressida thoughts, I Antony have, and Cleopatra? I, I know Troilus and Cressida almost not at all. Antony and Cleopatra is like most of the histories, two or three really good scenes and a whole lot of... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, as far as histories go, you've got Henry the Four, one and two, Henry five, Richard three, Julius Caesar is pretty good, but again, there's a lot of... I mean, after Caesar dies and the couple scenes after it, you got a lot of filler before 
uh, Mark Antony comes back. Uh, but just in, in general, the histories are a whole lot of yawn. Mm-hmm. Even is, though there's a lot of violence in them. Which we're discovering because we are going through the histories chronologically. So we've started with King John. We're breaking them up. So we started with King John. <laughs> Richard the First. We invented a Shakespeare. <laughs> we we were talking about how oh we don't want to do King John to start with because it's the worst one so let's do the Richards instead let's start with Richard one and then I was mentioning to my dad I was like yeah we're gonna do Richard the first next and he goes that's that's not a not a thing. Shakespeare play do you mean King John and I went we were actively avoiding starting with King John <laughs> nope looks like we're doing King John first. Yep. Yeah, I had the sense. distinct pleasure of sitting next to uh, Beth at work as she was uh, uh, certainly not reading King John and absolutely doing the call she was supposed to be making with her head in her hands going... Ugh. About the calls. Absolutely. Definitely not about King John. Not absolutely. John. Definitely not about trying to get through King John. No. Uh, I mean, I love Henry V... And Henry V has about 45 minutes to an hour of shit it just doesn't need. And it's the best one. It's the best of the histories. Like, all the ones with 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 Henry V, when he's Prince Hal and then when he's Henry V, those are the three best histories. I don't think there's a lot of argument on that. Julius Caesar would be the one I would think would have the strongest argument. Mm-hmm. But those three have the most compelling characters and the best character arc, especially if you do all three. If you watch all three, you're like, oh my god, I get to watch this character grow up and then become the best king in England's history. There were quotation marks around that. Um, so, I mean, that's a really good character arc through those three plays. And Henry V has the best speeches Shakespeare ever wrote outside of Hamlet. But still, oh my god... I played the chattiest character outside of Henry V in that show, and I'm like, three quarters of the things I'm saying are completely unnecessary. I will say them to my greatest ability, but good God, can we cut half of what I'm saying? You're really cute, though. (laughs) Oh, I had long hair then. Yeah. (laughs) It it, it wasn't as good. It it wasn't as good. Well, we uh, just did, the last one we did was Richard II, and Richard II was the... He was deposed by Henry the Fourth, and so that one kind of sets up the Hollow Crown. Mm-hmm. And uh, we noted with amusement that there's a just a real like light little slip in um, towards the end when they're Henry's talking to somebody about something and goes, "Yeah, can you track down that son of mine? Because he's off getting in trouble with his friends again. That might be a problem later on. And so that was like a nice little... Nice. Ah, okay. We see nice. what you did there. Now, before I get a huge clap back about the histories, Richard III is a great character. And the women in the play can be great characters if they're interpreted correctly. It's not as good a play. Mm-hmm. The character is fantastic. Friends, Romans, Countrymen is, in my opinion, the best speech Shakespeare ever wrote. It does not make Julius Caesar a better play than Henry V. That's fair. Yeah. And I'm going to throw this out there because I don't, I don't know that you guys have done this, but I'm going to throw this out here. The top five Shakespeare shows. Mm. In no particular order. Oh, number one is Romeo and Juliet. I think I already made that clear. Yeah. Romeo, and Ju- <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. Much Ado. The Scottish play, Hamlet, and Taming of the Shrew, which is not actually a comedy. I will leave it up to anyone who wants to discuss that with me to discuss that with me later. 
But those are the top five. I, I mean, clearly at some point you're just going to have to come on back out to Ohio so that we can have this, you know, get the full round table going. And because I think that discussion can be a two-hour episode in and of itself. It's been a six-hour episode when we didn't know we were doing episodes on Beth's balcony. So, <laughs> you know, that is, um, I, 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 we also at some point have to have you out to do, um, uh, Titus. Titus, yeah, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. I, I do have some opinions on that show. Yes. But that's because I actually almost went mad doing that show. I know. I was there. I know. <laughs> I uh, was your son? Yeah. 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 You, were, you were my idiot son that fell in a tiger trap. I look. One of two idiot sons. Yes. And I'm the one that's still around. <laughs> this is true. I, I still don't know what happened to that other guy. <laughs> I don't know. I live in Oregon now. So. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, do you do you know the story of what I said to Pat during a performance one time when you were in the tiger pit? No, I... So, he'd always lean into me because he was my good son that didn't die and actually survives the show and takes over. And so, he would he and I would lean into each other and we'd have a little conversation. He'd be like, what is it, Dad? I'm like, oh, your brothers are down there. Oh, crap, we're screwed. We'd always have this little conversation while the action was happening down by the tiger pit. Well, one day during a performance, Pat leans in. He's like, what is it, Dad? What happened? And I just go... <laughs> and Pat buries his head in my shoulder and cries for the rest of the scene because I broke him completely. <laughs> completely. Um, there was a uh, a great moment that I found out about after the sh- the, the fact. Uh, my dad took his uh, girlfriend to one of the productions of Titus because that was the first show I had been in. Years and years. Oh, that's a great date night. Right? So, Titus is a really romantic show. Exactly. Uh, so, and I'm, I'm in, I was in so much of it. I was not in it after I was in that tiger. Actually, no. I was on stage as a different character. Um, with zero lines. With zero. Just, you were living set dressing exactly, after you died. Yeah. Exactly. Um, actually, no. I did have to restrain Pat, which was a difficult thing. <laughs> that's right. That I did imperfectly. Regardless. Um, so we, um, uh, I fell into the tiger pit and then I was off stage and then, uh, somebody comes in with two burlap sacks and my, uh, uh, dad's girlfriend leans over to my dad's like, what's in those bags? And my dad leans over and like, pretty sure that's Chase's head. <laughs> and it was. Yeah, it was. My dad read the scene very well. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad we communicated that. I'm glad we communicated the violence so well in that show. Yes. Yes. But yes, uh, those are my some of my thoughts. I would have more if I had uh, Beth here to goad me on or Ryan here to get into a headbutting fight with me. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure if and when that particular episode happens, that's just going to be me setting up uh, the microphone that we use at my place, which has two-sided audio, and everybody else just leaves the room, like, we're going to dip on down to Stones, have a drink, and you and Ryan will just continue and not notice that we've left. Yeah, and the sound will be weird, because eventually we'll be pacing around the table like jungle cats, kind of <laughs> glaring at each other and laughing every once in a while, and then yelling a lot. Mm-hmm. Good, our neighbor- neighbors will love that. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, in a related note, Ryan and Beth, I love you very much, and I'm really happy to hear your voices every once in a while, and I do look forward to doing this some. How? He's winking and giving a thumbs up if you can't hear that. 
Just the weirdest smile ever. <laughs> You've seen weirder. Yeah. And with that, I think that's a pretty good place to leave it. We've, you've gotten um, almost 45 minutes here of us talking, and almost a third of that's uh, you know pretty good audio. Uh, so with that, I have been your apparently very laxing producer, Chase, in my defense. This is a very different setup than we're used to. And Chase, I feel like you should hit the royalty-free music now. Oh, yes. It, it's it's going to fade out. Okay. It's been out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah, we're good. We're good. Um, it's like the first time I listened to the.